0: The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, his dominion, is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed.
1: Father God, on this Christ the King Sunday, pray that you would remind us that you are giving us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And Lord, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of confusion, you are there ruling and reigning even now. And we pray, Lord, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear as we hear from your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. I hope everybody had a nice Thanksgiving. And if you didn't, you can take a deep breath because it's over. And you only have to do it again next year. So today is what we call Christ the King Sunday. And we've got white on. And next Sunday begins Advent, which is the New Year, uh, like New Year's Day. Of the Christian calendar. And Christ the King Sunday really marks a, trans, a transition. Um, it anticipates some of the things and themes that we'll focus on in Advent, but it also marks a cap of the liturgical year, because the liturgical year is about journeying with Jesus through his life and being anchored to him and what he has done for us. And we celebrate on this day, we remember on this day that Jesus now, even now, is sitting at the right hand of the Father and that he's ruling and reigning, and that is meant to be of great comfort to us. And what's interesting about Christ the King Sunday is it's actually relatively new in the liturgical calendar. Um, if you were with us last Sunday, we did the instructed Eucharist where Jay and I would take uh, time during the service to talk about what we do and why we do it in our worship. And one of the things that we were reiterating is part of our worship is that we're rooted in tradition and we're not really making things up. But that doesn't mean that the church doesn't recognize that there are moments where maybe we can emphasize something or draw attention to something. And in 1925, the Pope then, Pope Pius XI, so a long history of pious popes. Uh, The 11th, in 1925, he called for this day, this Sunday, this Christ the King Sunday, um, to be part of the church calendar. And he called for it because he saw it as the needed response from the church to what he saw as growing secularism and nationalism. How interesting. In 1925, growing secularism and nationalism, Europe had just endured World War I, and he saw that many of those problems had not disappeared, and boy was he right, right? because the shadow of another world war loomed before them. But he called for this day for people to remember that politics and the systems and the states of the world, that those things are temporary and that Jesus is the ruler of the universe. In fact, it was originally called not Christ the King Sunday, but the solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe, which is nice, but doesn't really roll off the tongue. Um, But I do like King of the universe thing because that's, you know, that sounds really nice. So this day is about remembering that Jesus is King and remembering that his kingdom is different. Jesus puts it very simply. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. That's what we heard in the gospel passage for us today. And the way that Pope Pius put it in the letter that called for this day, he says that Jesus has dominion over all creatures and this dominion was not seized by violence nor usurped, but is his by his essence and his nature. Jesus is by his very nature a king, but he doesn't take, he comes and gives and that his dominion is not a violent dominion. And that is hugely important. It's hugely important as we look at this passage before us from Daniel chapter 7. So if you have your bulletins, I'll go ahead and turn there. So in the verses before those we read today, Daniel describes this vision. A vision, a dream that he had where he's standing before an ocean that's churning with wind, and water, and it's a violent storm in the sea, and he sees out of the sea rising these four beasts, and he describes in detail each of these four beasts, their violence, um, their ferocity, and each is worse than the next, and Daniel is a little bit overwhelmed, as you might be too if you had this dream. He doesn't know exactly what he's seeing, which I take great comfort in because Daniel, if you know the book of Daniel, is known for being an interpreter of dreams. That's how he kind of makes his name in Babylon, is Nebuchadnezzar has a crazy dream, and none of his magicians or sorcerers or interpreters of dreams can tell him what it means, and he's about to kill all of them, and Daniel's like, I'll take a crack at it, and he gets it right. He interprets that dream, but in his own dream, he's not exactly sure what's going on. He has to be shown. Even this vision has to be explained to him. And I take great comfort in that because it can be confusing to us. Um, Indeed, this is part of what we call apocalyptic literature. And you may have an already existing and complicated relationship with apocalyptic literature um, from your pastor. you may not know what it is, but just as a reminder, apocalypse really just means an unveiling. It means to peek behind the curtain and to see things as they really are. So that apocalyptic literature is meant to give us a vast vision of the way that things really are even in the midst of trying circumstances. Because remember that Daniel finds himself in exile and the people of God find themselves in exile. And it may seem strange to us, but this kind of literature was meant to give them hope. It was meant to remind them that their situation was not permanent. So he has this unsettling vision of these beasts coming out of this place of chaos, the ocean. But that's not the only thing that's going on. Simultaneously to that, he has this vision of the ancient of days. He has this vision of this one like the son of man. And what our task is as the church or the people of God is to have those two visions in mind at the same time, that both are true and both are going on at the same time. And we have to see that God is ruling and reigning while there are these bestial things happening, that God is still ruling and reigning. We have to see things both at once. We have to gain a perspective. Without that perspective, we'll just be tossed and turned. We'll be hopeless. We will despair or we'll grow cynical. Alan Jacobs is a professor um, of humanities down at Baylor, and he wrote a recent article for The Guardian about what he called temporal bandwidth which is an interesting phrase. He says that we need to cultivate more temporal bandwidth, meaning we need to orient ourselves more to time and how we relate to time because we live in a moment where we have very little temporal bandwidth, meaning we just think about the present. We think about now. Now, 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 now. And if you only think about the now, you are constantly reactive. You're just reacting to things. My dad told me a story over Thanksgiving. He has this guy that worked for him Notice I said he worked for him, doesn't work for him anymore. But they had a conversation where this guy, everything was a crisis and everything was the greatest crisis. My dad had this conversation with him and it's like, they can't all be the same level of crisis. You have to rank things, right? He had no perspective, he had no temporal bandwidth. And that can happen, that's happening in our world and I think it's happening in the church because we are being sort of educated in being reactive. And if we're not orienting ourselves to the past and also to the future, then we lose hope and we lose perspective. And Christians are meant to be people of perspective and people of hope because the story of the beasts is not the final story. It's not the truest story. Look at verse nine. This is the second part of Daniel's vision. As I looked, he says, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took a seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. We are ushered in this vision to a heavenly scene, a heavenly courtroom, and the one that's sitting on the throne in this ancient of days, the Lord God. His ancientness speaks to his authority, it speaks to his wisdom. The description of his white clothing, his pure wool hair speaks to his purity. The fire coming out from the throne speaks to his holiness, to his purity and judgment. And then we see that this heavenly court is indeed a courtroom, and the books were opened. And what happens next is that fourth beast is judged. And we are shown that there is a greater authority than this beast, this ancient of days. See, we don't think of age as a good thing in our culture, right? But in their culture, they would think of age in terms of wisdom. You go and talk to the aged, wise person. So if you were ancient of days, you were the wisest of the wise, This is the one with all wisdom, all perspective, all authority. This is a picture of order. It's a picture of majesty. It's a picture of beauty. And we see that this Ancient of Days is not alone, that there are untold countless numbers before him. And Daniel just is grasping at the biggest numbers that he can think of to try to describe how many people are in this throne room. 10,000 times 10,000, he says. Stood before him. Thousand, thousands, thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. He's not giving us an exact number. He's, supposed, he's speaking to this multitude that are standing before this ancient of days. So that's the first part of the vision is that there's one who's sitting. He's in a place of authority, he's in a place of calmness, he's not in a place of reactivity. He's purposeful, he's wise, he's ordered. And then something else happens. Look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, Daniel says, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. This is a coronation scene. The Ancient of Days is going to confer authority, kingly authority on this one like a son of man. The words dominion is used, glory, kingdom. If you've seen the show The Crown on Netflix, in the first season, there's this coronation scene in Westminster Abbey when Queen Elizabeth II is crowned. And it's probably the closest that we can get to picturing in our head what this might be like, that there are countless people surrounding her, that there's pomp, there's circumstance, there's beautiful clothing, there's the gilded crown. All of that is meant to give us a picture of what her position is, She's being coronated, but she's been given that authority with a purpose. And so it is with the son of man. Verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. He's being given a kingdom that's not localized, that's universal. That all peoples, that all nations, that all languages should serve him, and that his dominion is everlasting and it will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. See, Daniel has two pictures happening simultaneously, and they are in contrast to each other the vision of the beasts and the vision of the Son of Man, who's coronated, who's given a kingdom. These beasts are those who take authority by violence. The beasts are those who have temporary authority, just for a time and a season. And the beasts are ones who act in a beastly way. They are violent. They are devouring. They are never satisfied. But by contrast, the Son of Man is one who is given authority. He is given authority by the Ancient of Days. And it is not temporary. It is forever, an everlasting dominion. And this title, Son of Man, speaks to his humanity which is in stark contrast to the beastliness. The beast is contrasted with this representative human who is given authority in order to rule and reign over all peoples, all nations, and all languages. So Daniel's vision comes to an end in the verses that follows. It says, Daniel says, I was very troubled and anxious. So he sees these crazy things and then in his vision he approaches one who's standing in the multitude and this person explains to him what he's just seen. This is in Daniel chapter 7, verses 17 and 18. And we should be we should be so thankful for these verses because it's not always that apocalyptic literature explains itself. But in this instance it does. And he says to Daniel, "These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth." Oh, great. That helps a lot. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. So again, you have this contrast. And the kingdom is not just meant to be kept by this Son of Man for the sake of the Son of Man, but for the sake of the saints that he will entrust the kingdom to. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. So this passage from Daniel gives us two ways of seeing that we have to hold in our minds at once. The violence of the beast is true. The nature of history is beastly and it's scary and you can pick any century and any level of atrocity from any century to prove that, right? The 20th century is a particularly vivid example of the beastliness of human history, but not uniquely so. You can pick any century and you can say history is beastly. And yet, all the while, there's this other thing going on. And in the gospel passage today, we get a human face to this dynamic of beastly kingdoms versus the kingdom of the Son of Man, because Jesus finds himself before Pilate, right? This representative of Rome, the empire of empires of their day, the ones that inflict violence, that... Gain their rule and reign by violence and devouring power. And Pilate is just trying to get rid of a problem. Because this Jesus guy is stirring a lot of stuff up, and he might have a riot on his hands, and he just wants to be rid of him. But they have this conversation. And Pilate, who represents this beastly way of being, sort of mockingly asks Jesus, are you a king? And they have this conversation and Jesus says something fascinating. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Well, Jesus doesn't mean that his kingdom is otherworldly, that it's purely spiritual. What he means is it's not, it doesn't operate the way that you operate. The way that you operate is in alignment with the systems and the structures and the way of being that is beastly. My kingdom doesn't operate that way. My kingdom is not of this world. And he draws a contrast. He says, if my kingdom of this world was of this world, what would be happening right now is my disciples would be enacting and inflicting violence to make sure that I wasn't handed over to you. And the very fact that I'm standing before you proves that I don't operate the way that you operate. What's fascinating about the gospel of John that this passage comes from is that John insists throughout his gospel that Jesus receives glory, his moment of glory, his moment of enthronement, his coronation even is the cross. That where he received, where he is shown to be a son of man, where he's shown to be truly kingly, where he's shown to be in utter contrast to a beastly way of being is on the cross. That is the most marked contrast of all. That a king, the one who is entrusted with all authority, would lay it all down, and that he would consider a cross a throne, that he would consider that his coronation. That's the human way of being. And he then entrusts that kingdom to his saints. This past week, I was in uh, my hometown, Amarillo, which was a very nice just to be home and have a slower pace and to catch up with people and I ended up having coffee with an old friend from high school and we, um, We've always been friends, but we've always had completely different ways of viewing the world. And I find it's deeply refreshing to talk to him because he doesn't think of me as a priest or someone he shouldn't say certain things to. He just says things, and that's refreshing. Um, so he just said just the craziest stuff, and I was just laughing at him. But the conversation turned to politics. And I'm not going to get into the who and the what and the when and the why of what he said because that's not important. What was important is how he said it. Because he considered that if bad things happened to his political enemies, he'd be totally fine with that. To the people that he disagreed with, if they befell some suffering or life kind of went bad for them or took a left turn, he would not just be fine with that, but would kind of delight in it. So his refreshing honesty became less refreshing in that moment because I was like, really? This is an interesting position to take. And he's like, I'm not you know, advocating for political violence. And I was like, well, why not? I mean, what's, why, why is that the line in your mind? So it was just an interesting contrast in the conversation. And it just struck me that he really does live in the now. And he just sees things that he doesn't disagree with as just an utter existential threat, not just as... You know, I don't agree with that. If I were in power, I would do it differently, or that's wrong, that's one thing. But to say, like, I wouldn't mind if they just disappeared from the face of the earth is a totally different way of thinking. And to me, that illustrates this contrast between a beastly way of being in the world and sort of the human way of being in the world. And I don't bring it up to shame him. Because I think that way of thinking has infected all (laughs) of our spheres and all our kind of ways of of thinking and being. Because I think Alan Jacobs was right, is we've lost sort of temporal bandwidth and we all sort of live in this this mode of reactivity. And we've lost sight that there's something else going on. And the way that the writer of the Hebrews puts it is that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken, but we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So how do we not live in reactivity? How do we expand our temporal bandwidth? How do we cultivate the vision that Daniel gives us? It's interesting to me that some, the language in his vision of the Son of Man, his vision of, spoiler alert, of Jesus, right? Daniel didn't know that, but we know that. It's Jesus. He uses this language of dominion, of glory, of glory, And a kingdom. And it put me in mind of the Lord's prayer. The Lord's prayer is a prayer about asking God to give us a kingdom way of singing, right? The heart of the prayer is we pray to our father to ask him to bring his kingdom, to bring his rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven. And that within that We're asking for our daily bread, we're asking for him to protect us, lead us and guide us to provide for us. But the heart of it is that we are people who are asking for that humane way of being. The one like the son of man who's given dominion and glory and power, the one who's entrusting to his saints a kingdom, we're asking God to bring that kingdom. I think that petition in itself, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, is a way through prayer that we can cultivate more temporal bandwidth, more heavenly perspective. Think of the, the crescendo of the prayer, right? Yours is the kingdom, not mine, not the political party that I align myself with. Yours is the glory. It's not about me, it's about you. Yours is the power. I'm nothing without you. I need you to give me daily bread. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory. I think it's through prayer. And maybe you're thinking, of course you say that, you're a priest. Prayer's the answer. But I think it's true. I think that as we go about our days, if we're not going into our days without that prayerful posture towards the world, we're gonna just live in reactivity. In our relationships, with our family, with our friends, with people in social media spaces, whatever you want to talk about. In all those spaces, we're just going to be reactive. And a lot of those spaces are designed to make us reactive. But if we can can cultivate a posture of prayer that says yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory, knowing that he's the one who gives it back to us, right, he's given dominion, power, and glory. And then Daniel says, what does he do with it? He gives it to the saints. I'm entrusted with this, and now I'm entrusting you with this to go and to be in the world a picture of my rule and reign, a picture of a different way of doing things, a picture of a human way of doing things, not a beastly way of doing things. So on this Christ the King Sunday, It seems like maybe Pope Pius XI had a little bit of a prophetic insight <laughs> that maybe we needed this. Maybe we needed a moment to pause, to step back, to lift up our eyes, to be reminded that there's something else going on. One of the things that he said in closing his letter that called for this day, he says there may be a temporary, temporary way of keeping peace. Yeah, we got through World War I. We have an armistice. Great. But that is only temporary unless peace is truly cultivated in the hearts of individuals. Unless we have settled in our hearts and minds who's really in charge, who really rules and reigns, who really has the kingdom, who really has the power, who really has the glory, then all human negotiated peace will always be temporary. And that is the hope of the kingdom of God, right? Is that we would be in his presence forever with the one who has called all peoples and nations and tribes and languages into his presence, that we would be his people and that he would be our God and that every tear would be wiped away. Let us pray. Lord, we may find ourselves like Daniel, confused in a moment where all we see is a churning ocean whipped by wind and all we see is beasts coming out of it Lord, we pray that you would help us to see you high and lifted up. We pray that you would help us to see that you rule and reign. We pray, Lord, that you would be king in our hearts and we pray, Lord, that we would remember that yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever and ever, amen.